Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Jimmy. I, uh, as Tiana said, I am one of the pastors here uh, at Missio Day Uptown, and we are so thankful that you have joined us this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we have been doing a series on Advent, of course, um, called Advent Embodied. Uh, and in our series, so now if you don't know, I didn't actually really know this growing up, but if you didn't know, there are like four themes for Advent. Uh, there are hope, which, we preached, which May preached on last week. Uh, this morning is peace. And then next week, Tiana will be preaching on joy. Hope she knew that. And then uh, Christmas Eve, I'll be preaching on love. Uh, And so we are preaching Advent embodied. What does it look like for us to recognize those attributes as embodied in Jesus, right? And then what does it look like for us to embody those attributes uh, in our current cultural context, right? Now, the uh, Eckert's very, very lovely introduced us to peace this morning. Great job, Ty. Um, You did great at reading. Uh, And and so I want to ask you the question. I I actually, we asked this question in the reading. I want to ask you the question to start. What comes to your mind when you think about peace or when someone brings up the idea of peace? For me, for better or for worse, and I do think it's for worse, the first thing that comes to my mind is pageants, like beauty pageants, you know, Miss America, Miss Universe. And you're like, why, Jimmy? Well, think, like, you guys know the, the sort of, like, common trope, right? They'll be like, if you had one wish in the world, what could it be, Right? And what do they say every time? World peace, right? Yeah. I was going to show you a clip from Miss Congeniality because it sort of expresses that well. And then it was like, oh, this is, I didn't like this clip as much as I thought. So we'll just show a picture, right? <laughs> Thanks, Sandra. Um, yeah, I think it's funny, right? We find it funny because it's, it's sort of a packaged and predictable answer. But I also think that there are reasons why this has become a typical response. I think the first answer, or first reason is that most people do long for peace, right? We all feel the desires for safety, security, a lack of conflict. Uh, Studies have shown that post-pandemic, a rise in anxiety has been pretty significant, right? Particularly with kids. And so this desire for peace, this desire for calmness is a real desire. But also, I think that combined with that, the way we define peace is not very risky, right? So often when we say peace, all we mean is lack of conflict. So it's such an easy response to say world peace in these scenarios because it's safe. For the pageant participant, saying world peace does not risk being misunderstood or misinterpreted. And I think that's a problem. I think we have such a watered-down version of the idea of peace that as a result, we fail to actually take steps toward being real peacemakers, right? In order for this to change, I think we need to redefine peace in a way that is deeper and more meaningful, a way that leads to more of an embodiment of peace in our lives and in our culture. So this morning, as we continue our Advent Embodied series, we're going to consider what it looks like to redefine peace by fixing our eyes on the Prince of Peace. But first, let me pray before we do that. 
Lord, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you that we are able to gather uh, here in Chicago and, and just fix our eyes on you. So, Lord, this morning, as I preach, I pray that what is remembered are not my words, but yours, uh, that you are glorified, not me, Lord. Uh, may you be big and I be small. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I'm a little dehydrated, so I might need to take a couple of pretty awkward water breaks. I don't know, Jen. I just am. All right. Thank you for asking, though. I appreciate your concern. Okay, so if peace is more than just a lack of conflict, what is it? The Old Testament word for peace is a word probably many of us know. It's the word shalom. Now, shalom is found in the Old Testament 236 times. And, so, and it's translated to peace, peaceably, or peaceable uh, 186 of those times. But, of course, shalom represents more than peace. Shalom has an essence to it that is related to wholeness or completeness. It is often used to explain peace within a complex ecosystem, meaning shalom takes in the complexities of social structures, of social communities. Shalom of a community is when the whole community is operating as it ought to, in perfect harmony. Uh, this, this idea was from Marcus, I'll give him credit. Think of, this, think of shalom like a puzzle, or a community as a puzzle. When shalom exists in a community, each piece is in its right place, interacting with the other in healthy ways, right? Often, in uh, a disruption in shalom, we would think of it as just like a piece being taken out, but in reality, it's more like the next picture, where every piece is just sort of piled up in ways that don't really make sense, right? It's all out of sort. Another way to think of disrupted shalom is a picture I've used before. So if a community is a nice, serene, calm lake with all of the water molecules interacting with one another, then a disruption of that shalom would be as if you were dropping a pebble in the lake, right? Or a rock in the lake. And so what happens is the disruption doesn't just happen with the particular water molecules that the rock hits, the disruption happens throughout the community, right? We all feel the ripple effects. Shalom is at the heart of the Bible. It's at the heart of God's redemptive story because perfect shalom is what we experienced or what we were ought to experience in the garden, right? It's how life ought to be. And so if the garden was perfect shalom, then disruptions of this shalom are often called by another name. Sin, right? The first disruption of wholeness, completeness, peace happened in the garden when Adam and Eve did not trust God but the serpent that the fruit was right for them. They disrupted this wholeness when they distrusted that God intended for them good, right? And the ripple effects are still being felt today. This gives us, I've talked about this before in light of justice, this gives us opportunities to recognize sort of like generational sin, right? We can begin to think about things like reparations or things like that when we think about the ways in which racial sin has reverberated throughout our community, right? Now, I want to say this. If the punk rock side of you, which I know that, that side of you exists in me and many of you, if it is uncomfortable when we talk about order and each piece being where it ought to be, trust me that I will get closer to the end uh, or at the end of what that might look like for us, right? But 
I wanted to start with a baseline understanding of shalom and peace. Because as you can see, this picture of peace is far bigger than just a picture of lack of conflict or war, right? It includes some of that, like these pebbles that we're talking about might be war, or it might be just like uh, conflict, right? But we have to consider, what are these pebbles, what are these disruptions robbing us of, is the bigger question. Understanding shalom deepens our appreciation of the, vis- of the vision of the Old Testament for a holistic and thriving experience, both individualistically and collectively. This vision is one that encompasses peace, justice, well-being, and flourishing Rooting in a, rooted in a relationship with God. I said a lot of words there, but that's what we're going to break down this morning. Make sense? Which brings us to the question of how do we restore peace, right? We've just talked about shalom being disrupted. The question becomes, how is it restored? Well, I want to reread our Isaiah 9 passage that Marcus so beautifully read this morning uh, to, lay, to begin to lay out for us. So it says this, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. Of the greatness of his government in Shalom, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. I want to jump just straight in immediately, and then we're going to talk a little bit, because it's the embodiment of peace, I want to sort of jump into the main point. The reality is is Jesus is our Prince of Peace, right? He is God's response to a world that has been disrupted by sin, to a world whose shalom has been disrupted. I want to show you another passage. Romans 5 puts it this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of the God. Okay, I lost some of you because that is just like a lot of theological words, right? What is this saying? Jesus is the one who has made peace between us and God. Starting in the garden, like I said, we disrupted the relational shalom between us and God, resulting in the penalty of sin, which is separation of God, right? Or what we have called spiritual death. But Jesus, in his perfection, came and took the penalty of that sin, and we who follow Jesus now have peace with God. And this reconciliation between us and God paves the way for us to experience peace with one another, right? It's the blueprint for us. Like, we can be like, oh, we have peace between us and God, therefore we should have peace between others. That is true, but it is more than that. It also provides us the reconciling power to have peace through the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that some of this can be pretty baseline theology, but sit for a second with the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he not only brought peace, but he is peace himself, that he has reconciled us to God and to one another. And while that feels a bit simple sometimes, it has massive and beautiful implications for our lives, does it not? And because of that reality, I want to use my time this morning to talk about some of the way that this piece plays out. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what are some elements of Jesus restoring shalom between us and God and between us and each other. 
What are some elements of it? And then how do those elements play out in our own lives? Make sense? I have three of those elements. The first element, what does restoring shalom include, is humility. Where do we see this? Let's go back to our Isaiah 9 passage. It says, for us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, in reference to Jesus' birth that had not yet happened, right? But how does this relate to humility? Well, we're going to jump around to the Bible a little bit. I should have warned you, right? Uh, Philippians 2 says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, Jesus was God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, the first step in Jesus' restoration of shalom through his death and resurrection was becoming human by being born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem. But what does his birth have to do with humility? You see, Jesus has existed since the beginning of time as God the Son with God the Father and God the Spirit, right? And they have been in perfect harmony and relationship with each other without a start date. They have always been in perfect relationship, perfect harmony. And yet, God, the Son, saw our situation. He heard our cries, and He knew that we would never be able to restore a relationship with God the Father on our own, right? So He became man. Philippians says, He made Himself nothing. He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. It was because of His humility Because Jesus counted us more significant than himself, that shalom was restored between us and God. So what does it look like for us to step into humility on the way to the restoration of peace? It means that we, too, count others more more significant than ourselves, right? First off, in our day-to-day interpersonal relationships. Now, please do not raise your hand, because I know many of you should. But How many times have you got, how many of you have gotten in dumb arguments with someone that you later realized were absolutely not worth it, right? Yes, see, I see those hands. How many times have you done it, right? My answer is twice. No, (laughs) kidding. Uh, (laughs) Okay, twice today. Okay, okay. We often care so much about being right rather than about being in relationship, right? Now, obviously, there are times when speaking the truth and being right are important, and that's going to hurt relationships sometimes, right? But I'm not talking about injustice in these scenarios. I'm talking about where you put the dishes, right? I'm talking about, like, what color your couch is, right? Just random things. Because more often than not, we make mountains out of molehills because our pride tells us that we have to be right in order to be worthy, right? Beloved, you have been made worthy by Christ's righteousness, right? Because Jesus humbled himself, you can live in humility now, knowing that the God of the universe loves you, likes you, is proud of you. You no longer have anything to prove. So I want you to let the freedom that comes with Christ's righteousness 
set you free from performance, from what people think of you, from needing to be right, right? This humility, though, also extends beyond our day-to-day relationships, right? Humility also allows ourselves, or allows us to situate ourselves with those who are oppressed and marginalized. Humility allows us to realize that our experience is not everyone else's experience, right? That just because I live in the world a certain way and the world treats me a certain way does not mean that that happens for everyone else. Let humility allow you to make your own experience smaller and the experience of others larger so that you may hear those crying out from the margins for a better way forward. Jesus, although he is in very nature God, did not consider his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, in humility, he used it for our advantage. Let us embody that humility. The second element of the restoration of shalom is sacrifice. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. By making peace through his blood. We, we already hit on this, so I don't need to dwell on it, but Jesus' death points directly to the fact that peace is often costly, right? Because peace so often involves reconciliation and forgiveness, someone absorbs that cost. Uh, when we were chatting about this sermon in our sermon planning meeting, uh, Emmy brought up the idea that peace so often involves pain because it involves getting into the really hard parts of life and dealing with them, Right? Just as we cannot hope without lamenting the realities of this world, as May preached on last week, so too can we not make peace without experiencing that which is making war, right? If we are to be peacemakers, it will cost us in time, energy, and resources. I'll be honest, I am a very conflict-avoidant person. So when I experience disruptions in my life, disruptions in relationships, everything in me says run, And sometimes I do, right? Not very fast, but I do. It is so much easier to run, but it is also way lonelier, right? Counting the cost of peace, of shalom, is worth it because we were made for relationship, both with God and with each other. Now, I I do want to provide a caveat here because it feels like this can be misinterpreted. When I talk about sacrifice here, I do not mean continuing to put yourself in harm's way of an abuser or an oppressor. The cost of peace is not silence as you continue to try and make it right with someone who is violent, right? I just want to make that abundantly clear. Abusers will often try and convince you that you ought to stay silent to keep the peace, but this is not what I mean and not what God would have for you. So I just want to, this is just, just in case, uh, if you ever feel trapped in a relationship with like this, I do want you to know that God wants better for you and we as a community want better for you Uh, and that we would help you get out of abusive situations if that's a reality. So I just want to let you know, I know that's really, really scary. Uh, It feels like risking a lot, but I just want to say I'm always available to think through ways to safely get you out of situations. Um, I know, again, that's a little bit of an aside, but just wanted to make sure that that was clear. The final element of the restoration of Shalom has a lot of overlaps with the first two. 
It is, it's two words, so I kind of cheated. It is justice and righteousness. I want to look back at Isaiah uh, to see what it says about this. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, this is again talking about Jesus reigning, right? Jesus being king, Jesus being the prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing, so Jesus is on the throne, right? His kingdom will reign forever. Peace will reign forever. And how is it upheld? Through justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, right? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what's this saying? In other words, there's coming a day in the new heavens, the new earth, where Jesus reigns as the prince of peace. He already reigns, obviously, right? He's already on the throne, but there is a way in which he will more physically for us reign, right? We will be able to see it. Amen. He will rule with government and in a society that is marked by peace, marked by shalom. And he will do that through justice and righteousness. The new heavens and new earth are marked by being a just society. And it will be that way forever. The question is, like, why are justice and righteousness so important? Well, if you go back to the, anal- or the puzzle analogy, uh, I want you to think about it like this. I think typically in conversations about social justice, there are particular people in Christian circles where that say that calls for justice are actually disrupting peace and unity. They, again, they, I am not saying that that is true. I'm saying they will say that calling for a change from people or society is just upsetting the apple cart, disrupting a well-functioning society that social justice warriors are tearing apart the puzzle. In reality, calls for justice are calls for others to become aware that the pieces of the puzzle are already torn apart and that we should care about that. Because the reality is, is when when shalom is distorted and disrupted, those with the least power and resources are most affected by that, right? So those at the top of society, those who rank up uh, uh, at the top are incentivized to keep the status quo, right? But I just want to say an unjust society is not a well-functioning society. We also have to realize that oppression and injustice are harmful to the oppressors themselves, right? Allowing people to oppress and marginalize in unabated ways erodes the ability for them to have empathy and humility, Oppression dehumanizes both the oppressed and the oppressors, and that's why we care about it. So in many ways, speaking truth to power, disrupting the status quo, is so that we can have a better, more righteous, more just status quo on earth as it is in heaven, right? So the elements of restoring shalom that we get from Jesus are humility, sacrifice, and then justice and righteousness. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, or some, at least some of you, that all sounds good, Jimmy. You're essentially just calling us to be better people, but what happens when I can't, right? How can, in other words, how can we embody these even more, knowing that our white-knuckle approach to, a, to improving our character has never helped us in the past, right? Now, I want to be honest with you guys. I was finishing up the sermon. I was literally probably right here, writing the sermon, um, yesterday, and I was a little bit stressed, a little bit anxious, uh, and Jamie asked me to do 
an incredibly small task. Like, it was such a small task that I am embarrassed to say what it was. <laughs> because she asked me, and I, I'm like sitting there typing, she's like, can you do this, Jimmy? And I go, ugh, <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know? And I like go do it, and then I come back, and I'm like, and humility, and it's just like, <laughs> like, what am I doing? Right? Uh, I, was just, I was just like being a butt is all I was doing. The reality is just knowing that we ought to be more humble, more sacrificial, more justice-oriented, that's not enough, right? Our, our uh, holiness does not often follow our knowledge, right? So in the spirit of Christmas, let me read to you a section of Luke 2 that talks about the birth of Jesus, and then I'll tell, why, I'll tell you why this is important. It says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger." Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praised God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. See, as we desire for the garden shalom to return to this side of eternity, we have to take the positions of the shepherd in the field. The shepherds were given an opportunity to fix their eyes on Jesus the Messiah, the Lord, knowing that he brought glory to God and peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Rich uh, Viotis, he's a pastor in New York, I think, he says it this way, the good news of Advent is not that we are faithful in our waiting. We often are not, but that God is faithful in his coming. Yes, I am calling us to embody peace more, but this is not, I because I think we can bring peace, right? I'm calling us to embody peace more because I think peace has already come, right? And let me tell you that there was a moment when peace looked like it was going to lose, right? When that uh, stone was rolled in front of the grave, it looked as if chaos was going to reign forever, but peace got up, peace rolled away that stone, and because Jesus got up, and because death has been defeated, we are able to embody that peace on this side of eternity, right? We, and we are only able to embody these elements of peace by, um, sorry, I lost my spot, and be peacemakers by relying on God's power through the Holy Spirit and with our attention on Jesus who is peace embodied. This is why when Matthew 9 calls us to be peacemakers, it says that we will be children of God. It's not like we earn being children of God as bringing peace. It's more like we're going to look like our dad when we bring peace, right? We are just living out that identity. So church, I pray, I, I urge you to live out that identity of peace, right? Bring the shalom that has already been brought. Thank you for listening to the Missio Dei Uptown Podcast. 
We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.